The front, if you would. Every year at Christmas time, there's always a hot gift item, right? There's always one or two things that stick out that are the, the things to have. And in 1980, the thing to have was the Atari 2600 video game system. And uh, my mom and dad couldn't find one that year. So uh, when me and my brother opened up Christmas and everything, they tried to make the socks and the uh, thermal underwear look really exciting and everything, but there was just kind of this void, you know, without the Atari 2600. Uh, until a week later, at Woolco, we found out that they had some. The problem was they were $30 more than, the, instead of $199, they were $229. Now, for my dad, that's a major problem, you know, because uh, the extra $30, like to spend an extra $30, and me and my brother, we were just like beside ourselves because every other kid on the planet was being amazed and dazzled by all of the incredible graphics coming through the Atari 2600 video game system, which we were without. So uh, we did purchase one the week after Christmas. But um, when, uh, when we play this game... And so some of you remember that, right? Some of you in there were shaking your head. When, when we were playing, me and my brother were getting these uh, awesome tank battles, if you remember the tank game. And there was an interesting button on the game that we uh, used quite a bit, and we would try to, to sneak it in, but it was a very powerful button, and I think we have an arrow there. It was the game reset button. So when we were having a big duel with my brother, and when we were doing tanks, and if he would get up like five on me, I would, like, fall down and stumble and hit the game reset button, you know, so I'd go back to zero. So you know how that works, where you just kind of do that. But the game reset button was very cool, so, because no matter how bad you were getting beat or if you got angry, and my mom made a rule that you couldn't hit the game reset button on your brother when you were playing it, but, you know, we would find ways to do it. But the game reset button basically started everything over again. Now, I tell you that story just to get to the point of, obviously, it's a brand new year for us. And as a new year, it is time when collectively, as a people group, we kind of think about newness, we think about change, we think about starting something, we think about ending something, we think about it's a brand new year, it's a fresh start. Okay, I didn't do this particularly this thing well in 2011, but 2012, I have a brand new start. So that's what I want to focus on today. We're going to look at a passage of scripture that we read at the beginning of the service in Ephesians chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to, to turn there if you would. And we're going to look at that very simple verse, verses, and there are five things that I find in there that I think are a challenge to us for a new year that Paul brings out that we can take and look at and their action steps that we can put into place for 2012. So as you're turning to Ephesians chapter 5, let me give you just a little bit of background about this passage. It's written by the Apostle Paul, who is writing it to a group of Christians living in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the top five urban centers in the Roman Empire. So this is a pretty big pretty big city that we're talking about. It was a trade route, so lots of trade going through there. So there are Christians living in this city. The book of Ephesians was Paul's letter writing to those Christians that were living there. 
So if Ephesus is modern-day Turkey, if that, for all you geography people, so you kind of get a sense of, of where this is. So Paul gives us very, five very practical steps that I think apply to our lives for the new year in those verses. So in verse 15, the first thing we read there, chapter 5, is he says, so be careful how you live, which we can translate into proceed with caution. That, that in life, we are to proceed in this world with caution. And we are to do so because everything in the world is always moving and always changing. But nothing accidentally gets better or good. Do, do you know what I mean? The toe of everything in our culture is not a pull towards better or more godly or better. It's always a pull the other direction. This summer, my family and I vacationed in Michigan, and we had a little cottage that we rented uh, just off of the Lake Michigan. And the first day we were there, there was horrible, um, horrible storms, horrible tides, a horrible tow coming in that they didn't want people to swim. In fact, they'd had to pull three or four people out that day, and we saw a few people, and it was just, it was just really, really bad. And there was a poster um, there that was talking about undertows, was talking about riptides. And I think we have a, a picture here, because my kids were asking about that. And so we kind of had a little lesson on uh, a rip current or a riptide. So if you've been around, you understand how that works. Basically, there's a, there's a tow, and if you're in it, it pulls you out away from the beach. So the rip current is pulling you out away, and uh, people people drowned. Hundreds of people drowned every year because of riptides, because they get in them and it pulls them away so far away that they can't get back. And the thing is they tell you about a rip current is you're never to swim against it, because you can't really swim against it. You'll just wear yourself out. But if you notice in the little poster there, to escape, if you go to the right or to the left, you get away from the current, because usually the current is right if you're in it, it's pulling you out. But to get to the left or the right, it calms down, and they're able to swim back to shore. Now, I think in, in many ways when we look at our culture and we look at our world, it's kind of a microcosm of the world that we live in, that there's this constant current, there's this constant riptide, there's this constant flow away from things that we know that are best for us, things that are good, things that God would have us to do, and it's constantly pulling and sucking us the, the other direction. So Paul says that we are to proceed with caution, and he says, be careful how you live, to think of it in those terms. So some examples are, you know, in, in, when eating, if you just eat whatever you want, whatever looks good, whatever tastes good, and just eat as much of it as you want, you know that that doesn't end up well, does it? If you party like a rock star and do whatever you want and have relationships with whoever you want to have and just have fun, we find out that that doesn't always end well, does it? If you say the very first thing that comes to your mind, and without even thinking about it or how it's going to hurt people's feelings, if you've done that before, you realize that it doesn't always end well, that we are to proceed with caution with the way that we live. Now, Katy Perry had a video this past year called Do It All Again. Some of you saw that, uh, and it was kind of a throwback to some 80s movies. Uh, it was kind of a clever video. But if you heard the song, the song talks about having a party. Her parents go out of town. She has this huge party, and like 50 people come to her parents' house. They trash the house. All of these really bad things, bad consequences happen. And then the chorus to the song is, we're going to do it all again next Friday night, which 
That plays out well in music videos, but in real life, it doesn't really play out very well, does it? We, we romanticize it with Hollywood or TV or the internet, but doing it all again, all the things that didn't work, and doing them again and again and again don't lead us to great things. So Paul cautions us to be careful how we live and to proceed with caution. Second thing that he says in the second part of verse 15 is that we are to choose to be wise. Choose to be wise in the way that we live. Paul says, don't live like fools, or don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. In chapter 4, if you want to go back and look at that earlier in Ephesians, he does this comparison between lightness and darkness, and so now he's doing a comparison between wisdom and foolishness. And a good definition of wisdom is making the right choices, making the best choice. Sometimes we get in this habit of looking at things as right or wrong, and and that's not always a a good idea. We look at things and we examine them, we say, is this right or is this wrong? The problem is that's not always the best question to ask yourself, is it right or wrong? Because right or wrong, the answer to that question can sometimes be confusing and sometimes can be manipulated because we give it the answer that we want to justify what it is that, that we want. Let me give you some examples. Is it right or wrong not to exercise because it's boring? That's not a really good question, is it? It's not right or wrong. Maybe the better question is, is it wise not to exercise? Is it right or wrong to spend the night at your boyfriend's house even though nothing's going to happen? Maybe right or wrong is not the right question to ask, but is it wise? Is it wrong to sleep in and not come to church or to quit your life group because there's somebody that's really annoying in that group? I'm not sure that right or wrong is the right question to ask. The best question to ask is, is it a wise thing to do? Is it the best wise choice for me? When we're asking ourselves, it's a better way for us to cut to the chase. And that's why Paul instructs us to choose what is wise. Because God is the designer of wisdom. He's the one that developed it. He's the one that that came up with wisdom. In fact, contrary to popular opinion, it's not Dr. Phil or Dr. Oz or or Nancy Grace that that came up with all these ideas of wisdom. It's God. And so God tells us, by the Apostle Paul, to don't live like fools, but live like those who are wise. The third piece of advice that we get from Paul is to make the most of every opportunity. And he says that in verse 16. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. How many people in here have ever missed a good opportunity? Anybody in here? Hands? Okay, all of us have. Um, I am the proud owner since 2001 of one share of Apple stock that was given to me on my birthday uh, by two guys that worked for me uh, on the team. I was the, the team leader. And uh, they both pitched in $12.50 in 2001, and for $25 actually purchased me a um, one share of Apple stock in 2001. Now, in um, 2007, in March 2003, at March of 2003, yes, Apple stock got to as low as $7, the stock price. You could have bought it for $7. So th- this would have been a fourth of um, what they paid you could have gotten it for. Now, in October of this past year, Apple stock reached $422. 
Now, that, that, let me tell you how that's a missed opportunity. In 2003, like, like you need to, you can't figure that out, right? I, I did a little bit of math. In 2003, when Apple stock price was $7, if you would have bought $17,000 worth, which I know that sounds like a lot of money, but $17,000 would have made you a millionaire today. And of course, at the, pr- the time, the problem was who was going to pay $7 for Apple stock? The company looked like it was going to go bankrupt. Um, there were all kinds of problems, and so everyone was trying to sell the stock, not buy the stock. But if you had been smart enough to buy it, you would now be a millionaire. So if you think in terms of $17,000, it sounds like a lot of money, but $17,000 would also buy you a 2003 Chevrolet Silverado truck. Okay, you could have that on eBay. You can get it for that price. Or $17,000 can buy you two tickets to the Super Bowl coming up here uh, very soon. But there is a $15 event day pickup fee that would be added on there, though also on StubHub. But you could have either got the truck or the Super Bowl tickets, or you could have taken the money and you become a millionaire if you would have put it in Apple stock. Missed opportunity, right? And we look at it in those terms, and it's really easy for us to see. But every day in our lives, we go through things where there are missed opportunities. Opportunities that God puts before us or allows us to experience, and we somehow miss them. Often we, though, look at missed opportunities. We look at them in a negative light. We often have this glass half-empty mentality to our lives. And that when we see opportunities or things that we perceive as negative, we perceive them as glass half empty situations, when in fact, God may be presenting them as the glass is half full opportunity. Let me give you some examples. Let's say we break up in a dating relationship. To some person, that, that, that may seem like the end of the world, that may be hurt feelings, but all of a sudden, God can take that and, and make it one of the, the best things that happen to you the loss of a job. If you've ever been in that situation, it it can be totally devastating, and and yet God can turn that loss of a job into one of the better things that you've ever experienced. Not getting accepted into a graduate program or to a school that you wanted to go to. You have a good friend or a close person that, that you know that moves away. There's fertility issues that you deal with in, in marriage, or you're asked to, to take on a responsibility that you don't necessarily want to take on, or a negative report comes back from the doctor. All of those things we look at as and perceive as not good, as negative, but God can take them and do beautiful things with them. We read in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to the purposes for him. So Paul says, make the most of every opportunity that you have. And you don't have to be in control. Because you know what? You're not in control and I'm not in control. God is in control. So our job is to experience the life that God's given us, make the best of every opportunity, take a deep breath, and just trust in God. The fourth action step that we see in those verses are to set goals. In verse 17, Paul says it this way, don't act thoughtlessly. Acting thoughtlessly, I mean, how would you think of that? Acting thoughtlessly is eating three Big Macs a day and expecting your cholesterol to go down. You know, that's acting thoughtlessly. It's just not going to work. Acting thoughtlessly is not going to class, not studying for the final, and expecting to get an A. 
All right, that's acting thoughtlessly. Acting thoughtlessly is taking your Visa card and charging a trip to the Bahamas and buying a jet ski and buying new furniture for the house when you can't even make enough money to pay your bills at the end of the month. That's acting thoughtlessly. Acting thoughtlessly is running in your first marathon when you haven't jogged since 1997. <laughs> okay, that's just, it doesn't, that's, that's thoughtlessly pursuing something. God says, Paul says, set goals and act thoughtfully. Because God gave us a brain for a reason, right? He gave us a brain to use. He gave us a brain to engage. He gave us a brain to, to reason and to think and, and to be wise. The famous Albert Einstein once said, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And yet many times we do that, don't we? we we're, our plan is to do the same thing we did in 2011 and expect different results in 2012. Even though we're going to exercise the same way, eat the same way, uh, do all the same things, and somehow we expect there are going to be different results. It doesn't work out that way. It just doesn't happen. So, for 2012 to be different than 2011, we need to have goals. We're going to talk about that more in a few moments. The fifth component, though, and the last one that we see in that passage that Paul showed in Ephesians 5 is to seek and trust upon the Lord. And he said, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. So there's this spiritual component to our life that, that instead of it all being on us, that, that God works and, and has this relationship with us and cares about us deeply and is involved in what we're doing. Many times we make the mistake, though, I think, of talking about spiritual life as, as a component or a slice of the pie. I mean, we think about work, we think about school, we think about our relationships, we think about uh, these other things, and then we think, oh yeah, and there's God in church, and so it's a, like another piece of the pie. When really that's the wrong way to look at it, because our relationship with God and the things that are spiritual should permeate every other facet of our life. It's not a separate category. It's a central core category, or not category, a central core component of who we are that, that, that goes through everything else that we've done. One of the big sports stories of the year has to be Tim Tebow. In fact, I mean, he, Tim Tebow is, is everywhere. And whether you love him or you don't like him, I think the thing that I respect about Tim Tebow more than anything else is his relationship with God is just who he is. And people get uh, upset about that. They don't want to hear it anymore. They don't want to see it anymore. But you can't deny from Tim Tebow that his relationship with God is just who he is. It's not like there's football and there's other things. And yeah, I go to church and I believe in God and that's just like a component. For Tim Tebow, his relationship with God affects the way he plays football. It affects the way he treats people, the way he talks to people, what he does with his time, what he does with his money. It's just who he is. And so Paul says we are to seek and trust upon the Lord and to understand what the Lord wants us to do. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, there's a great verse that says, this is God talking. He says, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, and they are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a hope and a future. I want you to take the purple sheet that you have, and um, if you need something uh, to write with, we're gonna, I'm going to give you a little exercise to take in, in the next couple minutes. Back in the table, back in the back where Chip is with the computer, there are some pins there. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to take three minutes. And I want you to look at this purple sheet, 
And I want you to figure out and write down in very simplistic form what, what your goals would be for this upcoming year. And, and you see, I've put some different areas. These are not every area, but I put finances, relationships, spiritual, health, work and school. And I try to put your spiritual in the middle, meaning it's kind of the core that should permeate every other thing. And then there's some, some questions down at the bottom. And the first thing I want you to do is to think of it in terms of goals and ask yourself two questions. What do I need to stop in 2012? There's a typo there that says 2011. What do I need to stop in 2012? And the second question is, what do I need to start in 2011? In each of those areas, and, and maybe, maybe all five of them don't apply to you. Maybe there's one or two or three. But I want you just to take a couple minutes and, and figure that out and jot down a quick note. And then once you figure out what the goal is, then I want you to take a moment and figure out what your plan is. Because if you have a goal, but you don't have a plan to reach that goal, you, you won't ever make your goal. So your plan is, how am I going to do it? Two questions to think of there. What action steps?